Welcome to BioTalk. My name is Jeff Meyerson, CEO and co-founder of Locust Walk, and you're listening to BioTalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. This episode of BioTalk is focused on Locust Walk's 2023 third quarter market conditions report, in which we apply the latest data to analyze current activities in the biopharma deal landscape. Each quarter, Locust Walk's deal team compiles key statistics and trends showcasing what is happening in the global, private, and public capital markets and strategic partnering and M&A activity. Our report covers key takeaways for the sector across the US, Europe, and Asia geographies for a comprehensive view of biotech dealmaking. We invite you to review our report and hope you'll find it useful in your business. To download this report, please go to locustwalk.com and go to our insights page. As always, Locust Walk is happy to speak with you further if you have any questions about our views or if we can be helpful to guide your organization through the current market environment. In the next few minutes, I will provide deal-making context, highlight events that have made a critical impact in the biotech industry, and provide our outlook for the future and our best advice on how you can survive as a biotech dealmaker. Jumping right in. Public markets have shown poor performance through the third quarter, with the XBI showing a decrease in value down 12% since the end of the second quarter. This drop brings the XBI back to its position at the end of the first quarter of this year, with it dropping by 8% over the last 12 months, which underperforms the S&P, which has been up 20% over that same period, a staggering 28% underperformance. The number of companies trading below cash has increased from June, where there was 165 companies, to now at the end of September, where there's 196 companies trading below cash. That number is approaching the all-time high and is significantly higher than the average of about 25 companies trading below cash that was seen before the pandemic. The decrease in the XBI is most likely driven by poor macroeconomic headwinds, specifically a high interest rate environment that makes it difficult for biotech companies trading below cash to raise capital. If you can earn 5.5% in a money market account or treasury bond, why would you want to take the risk of investing in biotech? Makes sense. Unfortunately, that's to our industry's detriment. Licensing deal flow this quarter was stagnant with the same number of deals as the second quarter, with average licensing deal value slightly down by 9% from the second quarter of this year. In contrast to previous quarters, partners are taking a shorter-term view towards licensing deals with a drop in investment in early preclinical slash discovery assets across all modalities and indications, but instead are focusing on assets with phase two data across all modalities. However, of the high-profile deals that exceeded $1 billion in total size, the majority, about 73%, still involve preclinical slash discovery assets and are highly milestone-driven, indicating some remaining preference for long-term, early-stage investments that such deals are still being done by large pharma who can afford the terms and are willing to pay large sums only in the future if these approaches are successful. The upfront values from these deals, while not covered formally in our report, has come down significantly and we believe makes these early collaborations much more challenging for biotechs to execute. Despite an increase in M&A volume, average deal size dropped by 52% to $718 million in Q3 from $1.5 billion in Q2. Wow, that's a staggering number. The big deal that Biogen and Riata did for $7.3 billion drove a meaningful portion of that deal value. And of course, you can't just exclude an important deal, but if without that deal, the M&A value would have fallen to uh, the lowest level seen since the first quarter of 2022. 
There were, however, in the good news department, 28 deals completed compared to 20 deals in the second quarter of this year. So that's a, a sizable increase in volume of deals. Later stage M&A, as expected, as the trend has shown, continues to be dominant this quarter with 83% of all value being phase two and later. The even predominantly of that, it was phase three and commercial was the vast majority of that 83%. There was one exception to this. There was an early stage preclinical deal done by DTX Pharma and Novartis, which provided a billion dollars of deal value. So that does give us hope that early deals are possible, but unfortunately, it's still the small minority of M&A. Well, the number of IPO and secondary offerings did increase this quarter, which at first glance suggests a slight recovery in the public markets, given a corresponding large increase in total aggregate deal value. Investors in the six IPOs and seven follow-ons saw an average return of minus 19% and minus 4% respectively, which shows that there's still challenges in the public financing market that if you get capital, if you raise capital and it doesn't perform in the aftermarket, it means that investors are less likely to continue to invest in those transactions. Despite a slight recovery, the IPO market remains largely depressed relative to early 2022 levels with four IPOs this quarter facing poor stock performance. Shifting to private financings, they continue to decrease and remain below historical levels compared to Q2 of this year, but the aggregate deal value and the average deal value, easy for me to say, has greatly increased, suggesting a trend towards larger private financings, which would fund companies through multiple data inflection points. Anecdotally, we've spoken with investors, and this appears to be an important strategy where the financeability of the company and the financing risk get taken off the table to make sure they're able to fund, hopefully through 2026 at this point. Total venture financing deal value this quarter rose to 3.7 billion, which is the highest level seen since the end of 2022, and sits at over half the aggregate value seen throughout 2021. So still way down, but certainly up. Again, big takeaway, much larger average financing sizes. Where financings have been successful, they have mostly been later stage rounds focused on later stage assets with clinical proof of concept. Moving to the European and Asian markets, Europe saw a significant drop in the private markets with financing deal values and volumes reverting in the direction of the first quarter of this year, down to around 600 million, uh, down from about 700 million last quarter, with the deal volume still significantly down relative to pre-pandemic levels. The decrease in volume may be a reflection of historical cyclical trends, and it's funny, but third quarter just doesn't seem to have as many deals done. I'm not sure if there's an explanation, but that's what the data shows. In fact, the average deal value for European financings for the third quarter of this year increased by 58% from the second quarter, suggesting a potential shift towards higher value deal making, which is consistent with the U.S. as well. European strategic transaction activity for partnerships in M&A increased this quarter, but aggregate value was notably depressed across both deal types, indicating a decrease in average deal value. Similar to the U.S., European partnerships have shifted towards later stage opportunities with a large increase relative to the first two quarters of the year. Asia saw a notable weakening in private markets across Japan and China in the third quarter with a decrease in aggregate deal value and volume, which neared previous all-time lows. Japan saw a decrease in value to 13 million from 80 million, a massive in decrease in, in total value, although in absolute terms still very small, but China saw a sizable decrease in aggregate value 
from about 950 million in the second quarter to 467 million in the third quarter. That's a big decline. When you look at the average deal size, however, Japan saw a 67% decrease, while China actually saw a 17% increase. That means the volume in China got even lower. In indicating large differences in the level of funding a company would expect for a successful deal in both geographies. Asia saw an increase in partnering deal activity across China and Japan, with both observing an increase in in-licensing deals that suggest continued efforts on bringing on external innovation. The silver lining is that both the U.S. and Europe markets saw strong levels of new drug approvals this quarter at 11 and 17, respectively, indicating, as we've always said, that the continuing innovation progresses on despite the challenging biotech markets. And over time, the hope is that this will be reflected in valuations. So what does all this mean and what is Locust Walk's outlook? We believe that the recovery, while underway for companies with phase two clinical proof of concept data and beyond, will take another 12 to 18 months, whereby there will need to be fewer companies trading below cash, fewer publicly traded biotechs, and declining interest rates. This has been something I've shared for the past 18 months. I feel like the groundhog on Groundhog's Day saying the same thing. It's going to take six six more weeks of winter. We still have 12 to 18 more months uh, before the, the spring will arrive. But I do believe that, unfortunately, given the comments from Chairman Powell at the Fed, as well as the other governors, that rates are going to stay high through 2024. The Fed funds rate is now five and a quarter to five and a half as of this recording. And there's talk as to whether or not it's going to remain flat or go up before the end of the year. And the terminal rate by the end of 2024 is going to be four and a half percent. I think that Fed funds rate has to come closer to four percent. Uh, before the biotech sector starts getting uh, going again. And I just don't see that happening in 2024. With the caveat, of course, that world events uh, are very unpredictable. And without being specific, if there was further exogenous shocks that could cause rates to decline or a recession to intensify, which nobody wants, that could actually lead to a lower interest rate, which could have the benefit for biotech of having it be the first industry to come out of the recession at the other side. Not something any of us want, but that is a distinct possibility. Absent that, I think we're in for a tough 2024, probably no different than 2023, maybe slightly better, but not materially. I hope I'm wrong. When it comes to private financings, IPO, and secondary offerings, there's been a slight uptick in financings, which does give us a little bit of hope. But again, I do think the macro headwinds are going to ultimately keep this at bay for the next little bit. There are still going to be successful companies, successful capital raises, successful drug approvals. And so it doesn't mean that people aren't investing. There's still a lot of investment capital out there. The question is, who's it going to and what's the output going to be? I would still not classify this as a window, even though some companies continue to get out, especially as preclinical IPOs continue to be an anomaly. To expect otherwise would require public investors to forget the lessons they've learned the past two years by investing so early. Preclinical private companies will continue to struggle to raise capital unless there is a very interesting scientific story or best-in-class product with validated pharma interests. So with that positive outlook, what's our advice for the current market? Some of this is a rehash that you've heard from prior quarters, and some of it is a little bit more nuanced. Pre-proof-of-concept private companies will likely need to rely on a combination of cash preservation, 
and their existing investors to bridge the company to a more favorable financing environment, or more importantly, a more value-inflecting event, which could attract outside capital. The number of investors that are required to be contacted for a given financing, plus the amount of time required to close the round, have both increased dramatically. Given recent trends towards upsize round sizes, companies should plan to capitalize on such higher value deals to fund the company through multiple value inflection points prior to the next raise. We've continued to see activity by Asian-based companies towards licensing assets that bring innovation to their pipelines and access to global markets. What we've seen from our own conversations is Asian companies have more interest now than ever before in the U.S. market for capital raising and commercialization, especially out of China and Japan, where for different reasons, those pharma markets and capital environments have constraints that the U.S. does not right now. And so those companies are looking to the U.S. for commercialization and for capital. Both investors and management will need to be objective about whether the company can or should exist as an independent entity and to try to capture value where possible if the alternative is considering a merger or liquidation. So while I'm an optimistic person by nature and I believe wholeheartedly in the future of the biotech system to create new medicines that could alleviate disease and cure patients, ultimately I think we're still in for a rough ride the next 12 to 18 months. We have to persevere and we will come together as an industry and hopefully get through this on the other side, a stronger, more vibrant ecosystem that's more resilient. So hang strong, stay, stay tough, and we'll make it through. In conclusion, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Biotalk. Please let us know what you thought and feel free to suggest potential topics for future episodes. We look forward to a productive dialogue and hope you tune into our next podcast. Please share with all your friends and colleagues so we can grow the audience. This is Jeff Meyerson for Biotalk, signing off.